Well, good morning. Thank you, Caleb, Tiffany, Aaron Paxton. Thank you, guys. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, First John chapter chapter two is where we're going to be today. First John chapter two. If you got your Bible, turn there. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. First John chapter two, verses fifteen through twenty-nine specifically. Um, while you're turning there, just want to kind of recap where we've, where we've been uh, in this series, third week in this series, the series called The Gospel is Love, a very detailed uh, kind of walk through the book of 1 John, this, this book that, that John the Apostle ultimately is, is authoring uh, and to give uh, in, in, a, in a fashion where he writes this letter to this group of churches in and around an area called Ephesus. Uh, he's kind of an overseer, a shepherd, an elder in regard to these churches, and he longs for them to know the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is this, that, that they're loved by the Father through the Son and the Spirit. And this is what John teaches, and, and, and we're really going to get to see the, this, the, the kind of love theme really emerge even more than we already have seen it. We've seen it a lot, uh, but in chapter 3, as we look into that next week, and then chapter 4 and beyond. But building this point, just, let's just look back to what we've seen and what we've, what we've seen John uh, preach and proclaim in this book, and what God's Spirit says through it. Uh, in chapter 1, saw these three things emerge, that believers, that the churches that he's writing to, his focus is this, that they would believe the gospel that the gospel is, is a, a, sounds like to many of us probably a word that is overused. We grew up with it, and there are people that think that it means different things. Here's the reality of what Scripture teaches that the gospel is. It's the account of, it's the good news of, it's the revelation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the implications that it has for the world. That's what the gospel is. And so he urges people to believe the gospel. All these people that are part of these churches, he says, look, Jesus has been heard. He's been seen. He's been looked upon, meaning he's been seen up close. He's been touched. John is one of the 12, that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about what the gospel is. John is present. He is there. He has seen. He has touched. He has been near Jesus. And so he says, believe this truth. Believe these truths about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. God has loved you and has sent Jesus to die so that you could have a relationship with him. You could live with him eternally. That life, as he would, John would say in his gospel in chapter 17, verse 3, that eternal life is this, to know the one true God in Jesus Christ who he sent. So that's the gospel. And then it has these things, these implications that bear out. And one of them is, is he describes the fellowship that believers have with the Father and with the Son. So not only are we called to believe in the gospel, now we have life in the gospel. Life in the gospel in that we're, we have a relationship with God and Jesus. And in addition to that, we are, we've been put into this family where we have community. We have relationship with one another. That we believe the gospel, we live in the gospel. And then also in the latter half of the chapter, he talks about what it means to walk in the gospel, to live it out. So we believe the gospel, and that causes us to, to be at a place where we live in it, and now we live it out. We live in such a way where we reflect this good news. We reflect who Jesus is to one another and to the world. And then chapter 2, John gets really specific on the front, and he describes what the relationship with Jesus looks like. That we will inevitably sin, but when we do sin, we have an advocate. That Jesus Christ is the very propitiation for our sins. That he has died for our sins. That we're to be ones who confess our sins and receive the mercy 
That mercy that's more that we see about that we're called to receive that mercy in recognition of what God has done for us. And then ultimately, he walks through the front end of chapter 2, and this is what he says. Effectually, he says, you are who God says you are. That this is what it means to be in Christ. You walk as Jesus did. You live in that way. It looks like this, that we have love for the brothers and sisters. We love one another. That should be a natural reflection, that we live out life in a righteous way. John builds everything to this point. In chapter 2 where he says, this is what the gospel is. This is what it's done in you. This is who you are. And then there's this shift where we're going to see today in verses 15 through 29. He really, there's going to be affirmation, continual affirmation of what it means to be a believer. We're going to see that in there and evidence of that. but, But primarily he's really kind of shifting the focus. Okay, so if these things are true. The gospel's true, so now what do we do with it? What is that walking in light? What does it really look like? What are the things that we do? Um, This is uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 29. Let's read this together. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is a promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. And to that we say, thanks be to God. Um, look, every, every good story, um, and you do this in your life too, when you tell a story, when you tell a story to your friends, when you recount the events of the weekend, or you tell someone at work at the water cooler about, about what you're up to, or your plans for the upcoming weekend, or what you're doing in life, or when you're telling somebody a story about your family, or anything that's happened to you, whenever you tell a story, you typically set the stage. 
You typically set the stage. You give a setting. So I think most of us learned this when we were young. We're like crafting a story, maybe like creative writing, literature. When we were young, English class, right? You, you write a story, and you don't just simply state the facts. You really give it color. You really give it clarity by describing what's going on around those circumstances. So when we were young, we would begin to write a story, or we'd read a story, and it would say something like this. It was a dark and stormy night, right? But there, there would be these elements that kind of gave us a picture of, of the arena in which this story is taking place in. So like Dickens would, would write, tell two cities, right? He would say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He's giving you a picture of London in that moment, right? There, there are all these things that kind of describe the scenario, right? Like, like, for, like this season, I expect to hear or say this phrase a lot. All right, it's, all right so it's third down and we're in the shadow of our own goalpost, right? <laughs> like like that, that, you're describing the setting, right? Like, and this is in everything. It permeates our life. So um, patron saint of, of what I would consider the great era of modern country music, Garth Brooks, would, would say it in this way, right? He would, he would say, just the other night at a hometown football game, right? Me and my wife bump into who? My old high school flame. He's setting the stage. He's giving you this account of, of what life looks like in this pivotal moment. John is doing this in this passage. And this is how he describes it. He says, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And in light of that urgency, in light of the gravity of this last hour, and we're going to get there, we're going to talk about what it means and, and who the audience is he's writing to and how they would understand this term and what that means. Because for, for you and I, we read those things and we see just the end. It's the very end. It's the end. It's like the end. This is the last hour of the end. But John is telling his hearers, he's telling these churches what they need to know in a situation that is pivotal and is grave and, and really, really matters. And this is the first thing he says to them in that kind of setting and that kind of moment. This is what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So if this is the last hour, if there's a sense of urgency about our lives, I think it's unique that John says, don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. This is kind of the premise that he's building off of. He says, this is who, you're, who you are in Christ. You've believed the gospel. You now have life in the gospel. You share in this relationship with the Father and the Son and other believers. You're called to live that out. And practically, he says, this is what it looks like to live that out in the last hour. It's this. Don't love the world or the things of the world. Now, look, I, I think you and I probably know this verse has been abused, and we've abused one another with it. Uh, we've allowed our hearts to condemn us and, and condemn ourselves about this. This does not mean that, that you, you can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. This is not some sort of like, all right, I, because I have this, then I must love the world and I need to sell it off and we've got to downsize and life's got to change. That's not what this scripture is ultimately saying. It's really not. When John says, don't love the world and the things in the world, this is what he's saying. Do not love the things that are enemies of, that are in opposition to God. 
Don't love the things that are in opposition to God. So even in that phrase, the world, we see it with positive connotations. The cosmos, the idea that all the, all the things that God's created, all of this good, we see these things as very good. So it's like, well, no, it makes sense to, to, to have an affinity for, to, to love, to care for, to appreciate the world. In some ways, that makes sense. But in this moment, in this context, what John is saying when he says, do not love the world, the word for love here means to take pleasure in. So the whole idea of this phrase is do not take pleasure in the things that are in opposition to God. Don't take pleasure in that stuff. Don't take pleasure in the things that glorify themselves the things that magnify themselves and, and do such in opposition to God. And he really, really describes here specifically in verse 16 what this looks like. Because if anyone loves the world in this way, in opposition to God, then the love of the Father is not in him. Here's what he describes in verse 16. These three specific things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. These things, John says, are not from the Father, but they're from the world. So what do these things mean? What, what does it mean to say the desires of the flesh? When we look at the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, you look at the use of the word as it's used here, flesh. Um, the connotation is typically this. The idea of self-sufficiency. This is like pull yourself up by your bootstrap stuff. That I am self-sufficient and I have no need of God to provide me the things that are my deepest desires, the deepest cravings, the things that I inherently need that I'm going to find those in a way that are independent of God rather than trusting him for those things and being devoted to him. So this is the idea that, that we're not to make ourselves the objects of our own affection. That truly is the definition of sin. The reformers would use it in this way, and they would say this Latin phrase. They would say, incurvatus in se, and here's what it means. It means, and it, the, it, that might sound silly to say, why do I need to know that? Because this is the best way of describing it. It means to truly be turned in on oneself. To like in a 180 degree way, see the opposite of what you're intended to see. Our lives were created to look outward to God, not inward to ourselves for self-sufficiency. So that's what John means when he writes and he says the desires of the flesh, that Jesus, that, that God himself should be the affection or the, uh, or the object rather of our affection and action in love, not ourselves, not ourselves. And look at what he says in the second thing, desire of the eyes. So the basic thought here is that the eyes are, are the source of our sinful desires. In a very sensory way, we perceive that, that life is found in more, in more stuff, in more physical and emotional satisfaction in a myriad of ways. We don't have to name them all. But that we would look at the things that others have in a covetous way, that we would look at the things of life that, that we don't have, that we don't possess, and that it would draw us to a place where we put our attention, we put our affection, we put our actions in love toward that. We love those things rather than loving God himself. The idea that we'll be satisfied by things of the world. And then finally, the pride of life. Um, if you have a different translation than the ESV out there, it, it might even say uh, 
uh, some older, older uh, versions say pride of possessions. And that's also a pretty helpful translation because ultimately what John is getting at here when he says the pride of life, that word life is really directed to the things that give life or support life. So the pride in what one has. And this is relative to things like food and to shelter and to clothing, the things that, that cause people to be able to be alive, to stay alive. And John writes to a group of people who he knows that have trusted in Christ, and yet they still struggle to recognize that the things that they have are not life. Those things are not what give them life. They're temporary. And they meet earthly needs for a moment. And that's a really good segue into verse 17 because he says this. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So all of these things will pass away. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things will pass away. But what remains? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's urging these churches, he's urging these believers to abide in Jesus to do the very will of God. Look back up if you have your Bible with you and you're looking at chapter 2. Look back up into verse 8. And you can see how he refers to the darkness that's passing away. And the true light that is coming, that has come in Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. He's like, this last hour that he's about to describe has to do with Jesus' coming, Jesus' ascension, and Jesus coming again. And all of these things that, that, we, that our flesh tells us to trust in, find your identity in your job, find your identity in your relationship, find your identity in how much money you have in your checking account, in your savings account, in, in, in mutual funds, in investments, in stocks, in bonds, in your home, in real estate, in your toys, all the stuff that you have, all of that stuff will pass away. It'll pass away. It doesn't feel like it today. Look, I woke up today just like you did, just like a day, another day. It wasn't like Bill Murray Groundhog Day, but it was another day, right? And I woke up, and, you know, we woke up, and not only myself, but those of us who keep our kids uh, when we're out here also know this, uh, that like, you wake up, and there's a child right here in your face. And it's terrifying. And that feels like the last hour, but that's a different sermon. Um, <laughs> but, but look, I woke up and, and we like, you know, hung with our daughters and we tried to get them to put on clothes and they fought us on the clothes. Then we tried to get them to eat and they fought us on the food. And it was just nothing felt like the end today. Nothing felt like the last hour today. You get in the habit of living life, and all these things are a part of your life. John's not mad at that. John's not mad at you. The Lord is not mad at you for the good gifts he's given us. Know that. Hear that. Be freed from that. But at the same time, recognize that those things don't give you life. Those things are not that which gives you life. Life comes from God himself. Um, so John wants his hearers to live with the end in mind, so he walks into this next 
passage, this next phrase in uh, chapter eight or verse 18, rather, and he says, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. All right, so what does John mean by this? Because the initial thought is, and it's not strange to think this, because I think we all think this when we read this, that it's, John says it's the last hour. We're like, that guy got it wrong. Not the last hour, bud. Like centuries later, we're here. Centuries later. It's not the last hour. Maybe what he means by the last hour is different than what you and I think he means. And that's really the crux of what's happening here so we can understand why he's saying the thing that he's saying, the thing that he's trying to teach that will say in verse 26. Why, why is he teaching it? Because he says it's his, the last hour. Here's the thing. That phrase, the last hour, really more deeply in this language innately to these people really reflects something more like this, the last days. The last days. And now you might be saying, okay, that's just semantics, Michael, because now you've just kind of moved it from hour and you've moved it to days. You've just kind of stretched it a little bit uh, and you kind of haven't pulled the wool over my eyes. You're not fooling me. I don't want this guy picking my lotto numbers. All right? He's wrong. He didn't get it right. But he's writing to a very specific group of people who would hear this in a very, a, a very specific way. You see, the early church would hear a phrase called the last days or the last hour, and they would recognize it as this. Not on some sort of timeline like you and I might, but instead that Jesus comes, that there's the incarnation, that Jesus comes and is born. Jesus comes and lives and dies and is resurrected and ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then the next event is his second coming. It's his return. Those are the last days. That's the last hour. We find ourselves in that last hour. And I'm not, I'm not look at me, I'm not being apocalyptic. I'm not saying that tomorrow I'm not going to wake up with a kid right here in my face. All right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we read things like this and we say, oh, well, there's a timeline. It's coming. When's it going to be? Well, what do the scriptures say regarding the last days? It's this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. And Peter writes, and he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. This should help us. This should help us understand that the last days are, are not these moments where we look in some sort of apocalyptic manner to like, uh, is, is the sky going to fall tomorrow? Is it, is it over then? No, no, no. The point is we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But the last days are truly that season, that time, that space in which you and I exist between the very coming of Christ and his coming again. Here's another scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Paul writes, and he says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. All of these things point to believers. They show us the reality that we don't live life 
in such a way where we, we look toward a market date or, a, or an end in that manner, but we live with urgency. We live with urgency because we don't know the day or the hour. And that's what John is doing in this moment. He's telling them the truth about the last hour, about the last days, about this era, this age, this epoch between Christ's coming and Christ coming again. But he's telling them there's this one thing that is of dire importance. And I want to show you it's important because we're in the last hour. And here's what he says. Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. So in 1 John and 2 John, these are the only places where you're going to see in Scripture, if you comb your whole, comb your whole New Testament, this is the only place you're going to see that word antichrist used. What does he mean? He's describing what Jesus would teach toward false Christ, false prophets in, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. Um, but ultimately, the one who would come as a false messiah, the devil incarnate who, who precedes the end of the world. If you want to read more about that or look directly into that, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. But the thrust for John here is not the ultimate antichrist that will come, but those that he's already seen with his own eyes. People that he's already seen with his own eyes, that, that he's had a relationship with, that he's seen, that he's known. And we know this because he says, so now many antichrists have come. And he says, they went out from us. This is not like a general statement. They've been with the church, these local bodies, these newly formed churches around Ephesus. That There have been people there who have been antichrists that have gone out from them. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain, so it could be easily seen that they are not of us. Well, what is Antichrist? What is he talking about? Ultimately, he is talking about those who are against Christ. Those who are against Christ. What does it mean to be against Christ? Christ. There was, you remember, John's been writing to this group of people who's struggling with those who've left the church who would say that they have some sort of Gnostic knowledge. They have this individual spiritual knowledge that God has given them and that Jesus is, is not who he says he is, that Jesus is not the very Son of God, that Jesus is a man among men, or this group like the Essenes, this group of people that would say that Jesus was, was divine for moments, but that divinity left him at the cross that he's not truly one with God, those that deny Jesus' divinity, those that would say that life is found in anything other than Jesus, that the Son and the Father are, 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 don't have to be connected. They can be mutually exclusive. Those things can exist separate. He would say, no, this is Antichrist, and there are those people that have existed in this church, and here's the reality. Um, I, I don't think that you and I look around and say, Oh, remember those antichrists that were here? Like, we don't, we don't talk like that. We don't think that. We wouldn't say that to one another. I don't mean that to be humor. I'm being serious. Like, we don't say that to one another. 
But the reality is there are those who have gone out from us, who have departed from us, who have left not, I'm not talking about leaving church attendance, all right? So, so not, don't, like, nobody goes and, like, tells their buddy this week, hey, miss you at church, by the way, you're an antichrist, okay? We don't do that. That's not what we're saying here, all right? But people who have left, people who have moved away from the faith, they've stopped believing in the gospel. They've stopped believing that, that Jesus was heard and seen and looked at up close and touched, that, that Jesus was just a good man. A good model for life, a good teacher, one among many good things, a truth among a world of truths. That's anti-Christ. That is against Christ. Um, John is writing to these churches. You look down to 26. He's writing to them to keep from being deceived for these others who are saying that, that Jesus is not who he says he is. Is that something the church still struggles with? I believe so. There will be people who say that Jesus is not who he says he is. And I think this is just a fact of life. Like the older I get, the more I see this. The more I see that people have moved on to a different thing, they've moved on to a different idea, they've moved on to like this new spirituality that they found, they've found their truth, they found their thing, and ultimately, it's antichrist. It's not of the Lord. So who are these people in our day? People that would say, look, my hope is in Buddha. Or my hope is in Krishna. Or, or my hope, or, or I don't even have hope. I just deny all gods. All right? Um, or even those who would say, we've got to continue putting our trust in Mosaic law. And we've got to continue making sacrifices for our sins, because they don't believe that that actually points to the one true sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Those things are anti-Christ. All right, so at this point, that sounds really aggressive, and I know that. I, I, I'm, I am aware that as I state that, that that sounds incredibly aggressive, that, that anyone who believes something other than Jesus Christ can be the way, can be the truth, can be the life. That sounds really exclusive. It sounds really exclusive, and it might sound inconsiderate, and it might sound unkind, and it definitely doesn't sound modern, and I'm aware of this. But here's the reality. The whole of Scripture teaches this, that God the Father... Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the triune God, that the gospel is the most inclusive thing in the world. The gospel is the most inclusive thing in the world. And the world will try to tell you it's not. But here's the reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. This is not restricted by race by color, by creed, by socioeconomic status, by what you've come from or what you're living in or what you're going to. For the whole world. So look in 1 John chapter 2 verse or, or yeah, 1 John 2 2, look up at the top in front of you. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but who? The sins of the whole world. Everyone is welcome to have a relationship with God. 
everyone is longed for. God tarries, the second Peter passage says that he's waiting so that people won't perish, so that people will come to know him, to have life in him. The gospel is the most inclusive thing in the world. The exclusion is found here. That life doesn't come apart from knowing Jesus the Son. There's no way in which Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. And we're not to be deceived. The world will try to deceive us and tell us that there are other things, there are other ways, there are other means. God loves you too much to not give you what you want. Just go do it like how you want it and and do what you want. Don't believe those lies. And we as the church, and I mean the church universal, and our local body here as one church on two campuses, we need to be people that recognize the deception that the enemy will try to put in our churches. To say that we don't have to believe all the scriptures, we'll just use this one and not that one. And God didn't really mean it that way for this time and this season. It's a modern world now. Things are different now. This doesn't change. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And it might sound silly to say this, especially to a room of card-carrying believers. Right? Like, this sounds weird. Like, this guy's telling us, like, the simplest thing. And then I would, like, point you back and I'd be like, hey, look, this is... Take this up with scripture, okay? But John is saying this to believers. He's telling them why. Because the things that are happening, the things that the enemy is doing in our world, he's trying to deceive you and I even now. Don't lose this. Don't lose the reality that life is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. In no other thing. The enemy will try to push you toward the desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes, the pride of life, all of those things. Reject it. Run away from it. Don't believe it. Don't be deceived by those who have run away from the faith. Instead, let's love them. Let's move towards them with the proclamation of the gospel. Deeper belief in the gospel. 2.20. Look at verse 20. Um, Something incredibly profound here. Very Trinitarian. Something that you're going to find throughout the scriptures. Um, John and Paul are very similar here because they're, they're talking about the same thing. We'll see how Paul describes it in a minute. Um, but verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. So this is ultimately the thing that allows you to, allows you to push back against these lies, this deception that people are, are, are trying to bring into the church. So verse 20, it says you, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So anointing in the Old Testament, it was this picture of oil, this very physical thing that would be put upon someone and not just like in a drop, but it, but it would like trickle down, right? Like there was a very palpable sense in how real and how physical this anointing was. What John is saying here is that, that you have something very real that rests in you. It's God himself, the Holy One, by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and that is the source of knowledge. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verses 21 and 22. He's saying the same thing. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ 
and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So in the Old Testament, the anointing was a picture of, symbolic of the spirit of God coming upon. This has happened to you and I. If we've trusted in Christ, if we've believed in the gospel, if we've repented of our sins, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And it's that spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's God himself, the very spirit of Jesus Christ, who will teach us what we need to know, who will give us knowledge to fight against these attacks of the enemy. Look at John's gospel that he would write, uh, chapter 16 and verse 13. This is the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. To his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So here's what's happening. Jesus is saying that when the spirit speaks, it's himself speaking. It's the father speaking. So these people in John's day that were Gnostics that would say, oh, well, the Lord has given me, I've, I feel a spirit uh, that says this, and if it's antithetical to God's word, if it's opposite of what God's word says, I don't know what to tell you, man, but those two things don't exist together. That's not how the Spirit speaks. The Spirit speaks upon the authority of God the Father and Christ the Son. All right? That's how it works. So these people that are saying, well, you know, God told me that I can go do this thing that, that's, that's not scriptural, that's, that's clearly this. You know, I, I've, I have a piece about it. I feel that I can do this. I have the wherewithal. I have the ability to do this because God's Spirit's told me. If Jesus said otherwise, we got issues. Truly. It's the spirit that guides us into truth. The spirit that causes us to abide. That's that knowledge that John is talking about. Look down to verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. He's not telling them something new. Again, this is like, this is like the, the new commandment to love, right? He's not telling them something that they haven't heard since the very beginning when they began to trust Christ. But instead, he's telling them to remind them, to assure them because they know it and because no lies of the truth. Don't believe the lies that the world will sell you. To tell you that Jesus is just one of many things. And if you like Jesus, that's a good one. It's a good pick, right? There's, but there's other stuff too. This is the reality that we're called to cling to, to believe in, to trust in, to hope in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And this is what he says, who's a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Not only the Antichrist ultimately to come, but those who have gone out, those people who would live in such a way where they would be against, they would be anti-Christ. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You look back into chapter 1, and this is why he describes the fellowship being with the Father and with the Son. These two cannot be separated. You either believe the gospel in Jesus Christ himself and have the Father. But if you don't confess that, then you don't have, you don't confess that about Jesus, then you don't have the Father. And he says this, and this is the promise, or let, let what you heard in verse 24 from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard in the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So Paul would say it in this way to the Colossian church. He would say, therefore, just as you receive Christ, so walk in him. We're not going beyond anything. We're not trying to do anything more than just truly trust and abide in Jesus Christ. That is enough. 
And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And then look into verse 26. He says this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Really important to see that this imperative, that, the, that what he's saying is, is indicative of action that is taking place in the here and now. That there are those who are trying to deceive you. This is active, not past tense. This is happening in the, in the moment, in the present. There are people that are trying to deceive you. Deception is real and it's affecting the church. This is what he's saying in effect. It's not enough to realize that there are people that are heretics, there are people that are antichrist, that they're just kind of around. All right? But they pose a danger to you. They pose a danger to you because they begin to tell you that who Jesus is is just a thing and it's not enough. That you need more, that there's more to life out there. He says, look, this is a danger. Don't believe this. Don't give in to these lies. And then look at verse 27. It says this, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. That's the spirit that lives in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You have no need that anyone should teach you. I know a couple little people in my life that live like this. They don't think that they have a need for anyone to teach them. They got it figured out. What does John say when he writes this? You have no need that anyone should teach you. There will be people who say, well, I don't need to follow the scriptures. I don't need to believe those things. I don't have a need. They'll use this verse to try to say, I don't have a need to be taught. Well, that on a, just on the basis of the fact that John's written this to teach things, Right, So what he means is not that people don't need to be taught anything. What he's saying is concerning the divinity of the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit that has come into you. The Holy Spirit teaches you all things. You don't need the outside world or any sort of other additional instruction to teach you the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. The Spirit gives you what you need to know of him in truth. And his anointing teaches you everything. And then look at this. It's true and it's no lie. It's reliable. It is trustworthy. And then just as it has taught you, it says, abide in him. So this is the answer to life in a broken world, to life in a world that wants you to to be ultimately cultivated and shaped by the very desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes, the things that you have or the things that you've yet to get that you really want. This world, the enemy is trying to tell you that this is what life looks like. Here's what God is telling you. Life is found in me through the Son, by the Spirit. That life, eternal life, John chapter 17 and verse 3, he would say this. He would say that this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son, who he sent. That's eternal life. That's what it means to live. It might sound silly to say, are you telling me that what I'm supposed to do is like keep believing the gospel? Is that kind of the core of this? Absolutely! There is nothing else. So continue in this. Believe this. Let's remind each other weekly and daily and hourly 
that we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, but in him we have all hope. And then he says this in verse 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, today we're given the opportunity. Um, I'm thankful for this, to celebrate this in the most tangible of ways. In a moment, uh, as our worship team comes, um, and elders and, and deacons come uh, to, to serve this, this spiritual meal, this physical meal, but this very spiritual meal, um, we, ha- we have the opportunity to see before us a picture of what John would say, that which has been heard, that which has been seen, that which has been looked upon up close, that has, which has been touched, and recognize the truth of the gospel that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for the very remission of our sins. And so in a moment, we're, we're going to take time to celebrate this together. Um, so if you would, uh, bow your heads uh, with me, and um, let's look toward this meal as a response to God's word. Heavenly Father, in a world that would pull us in every direction, an enemy who would seek to assail us by feeding us lies, God, by those who are against you, Father, we face inordinate struggles daily. God, would you help us see that our identity is found in you? That we are who you say we are. That we're chosen, that we're not forsaken, Father, that that as, as 1 John teaches us, that we're people who have an advocate in your son, Jesus, that we are forgiven, that we are beloved, that we have overcome the evil one that is seeking to assail us, Father. And we do that as we continually abide in you. We trust in you. To God, this morning, let us do that yet again. Whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time. God, we confess that we need you. That we are prone to wander. And God, we feel it, that we, that we feel prone to leave you that we love. God, help us abide in you through your grace and mercy. God, would you minister to our spirit in this moment as we taste and see that you're good. In Christ's name, amen. So in a moment, we're going to ask uh, that you come and that you would truly taste and see of God's goodness or of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy to us Christ's body broken for you his blood shed for you for the remission for the very forgiveness of your sins. Uh, a couple of important things. One, uh, if you are uh, gluten intolerant or you're gluten free, we we've got that option up here. Um second, at, e- at each of these tables. Um second, uh just want to say this. Um look, I think one of the incredible things um 
about celebrating this is the way that we get to just come do it and, and do it together. Um, here's the reality. If you, if you are not a believer, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, um, I want you to know and understand that, that we wouldn't want you to come be a part of this as some sort of rote ritual thing. Instead, this is for people who truly have trusted in Christ for salvation. Um, so we would just kindly and as politely as we could ask that, that in this moment, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not giving your life to him, we'd ask you to refrain from taking this meal. Um, and for those of you that are believers, um, this morning we, we have the opportunity to see, um, look, it's tiny. The wafer is very tiny. Um, I have tasted things that have been a little more flavorful, I'll be honest with you, Okay. But as real as this bread is, so real was the body of Christ broken for you. That's what's at work here. That's what the Spirit is doing in this moment to remind you of this. As as wet and as real as this juice is that you will put on your tongue, know that so real and so tangible was Christ's blood shed for you. And then also, finally, I want to say this. Um, Look, and, and I've said this a lot, but... There are those of you that need to hear this, who need to believe this. We talked about the struggle to believe earlier, to believe that you're chosen, to believe that you're not forsaken, that you are who God says you are. Here's the reality. I don't know what your life's looked like this week or the past month or whatever. If you're in Jesus Christ, the the enemy will tell you, like, you're not worthy of that table. You're not worthy of that meal. You can't come eat this because you sinned a bunch this week. And you did some awful, horrible stuff. And here's what you need to say in this moment to the enemy. You need to say, I'm a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior. His mercy is more. And you get your behind up here to this table, and you eat this food, this spiritual food, the gifts, the good gifts that God has given you. All right? Um, So do this. Uh, As you feel ready, rise and come. Let's taste and see the Lord's good together.